You know, I broke out of what I called the echo chamber a few years ago, um, and my eyes just opened to a lot of things. So if we were, if you and I were both at one calorie above our maintenance, we are both in surplus, and you ate a bunch of monounsaturated fats and I ate a bunch of saturated fat, arguably the research suggests that I am going to reduce my insulin sensitivity more than you. That's a very real thing. And I think that the low carb community should take a lesson from that because unfortunately we have this, uh, such a dogmatic view that we're, you know, we're not willing to look at that. I don't want my kids to grow up and be like, oh, my dad was the one-sided guy. Like I need to look at the bigger picture. I've got the resources now. I've got the team. Like it would be irresponsible for me not to. I really, truly, sincerely want them to like look at the internet and say like, wow, you know, no, my dad was pretty like even keeled and he was cool. Welcome back to another episode of The Proof. I'm Simon Hill, your show host. Today's guest is Thomas DeLauer. Many of you may already be familiar with Thomas as he boasts an impressive YouTube channel with a staggering 3 million subscribers and 15 million monthly views. I first encountered Thomas approximately eight years ago when he ardently advocated for a low-carbohydrate ketogenic diet. While he certainly remains a proponent of a lower-carbohydrate approach, his perspectives have evolved, now adopting a more nuanced stance that places greater emphasis on the importance of unsaturated fats and fiber, a viewpoint that we both share. The mere fact that he's been able to change his mind is something that I have the utmost respect for. Recently, we connected and I found it rather intriguing to engage in a conversation with someone who follows a very different dietary path, yet maintains an open-minded and non-dogmatic approach. My hope is that this exchange offers valuable insights and helps foster a deeper understanding of diverse perspectives within the wellness sphere. Before we dive into this exchange, I'd like to kindly request that you subscribe to our channel on YouTube, Apple, Spotify, or whichever platform you're tuning in from. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Your support is not only deeply appreciated, but also essential in expanding the reach of these episodes. And now, my conversation with Thomas DeLauer. One of the best ways to track our health is to regularly get blood work done, so we can take a peek under the hood and get a feel for the state of our cardiometabolic and hormonal health. You can do this with your local doctor, or you can use a service like Inside Tracker. The nice thing about Inside Tracker is they make the process super convenient. You can organize their phlebotomist, a person who draws blood, to come to your house or office to do the blood draw. A few days later, your results show up in the Inside Tracker app, and they provide lifestyle recommendations based on whether a particular test is suboptimal, normal, or optimal. I've checked Inside Tracker's lifestyle recommendations, specifically the exercise and nutrition ones, and I can confidently say they are evidence-based and in line with the information shared in both my book and on this show. They even added ApoB to their ultimate plan, based on recommendation from myself and others. It's also nice to have all of your lab results readily accessible in one mobile app, making it easy to pull up past results and see trends and patterns over time. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon for this exclusive offer. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. 
If you're a long-time listener of this show, you'll be well aware of the scientific evidence that supports a high-fiber, plant-rich diet for good long-term health. And while I certainly believe in a food-first approach, there is a role for supplements to help optimize the intake of specific nutrients and address any nutritional gaps. Enter Emil. Emil is a plant-based wellness company with a series of products to help you optimize your plant-based diet. Two of my favorite products being the Essential 8 Multivitamin and the Optimal Omega Plus. The Essential 8 contains eight key nutrients that plant-based eaters often fall short in. And the Optimal Omega Plus contains a direct source of DHA and EPA Omega-3s, same as in fish, but from algae. In fact, taking Optimal Omega Plus daily, which contains 750 milligrams of EPA and DHA, is equivalent to eating two to three pieces of fatty fish per week, in line with the nutrition recommendations globally. To get your Essential 8 and Optimal Omega Plus, head to theproof.com forward slash friends and follow the link which will get you an extra 10% off your first order. That's theproof.com forward slash friends. Great to be doing this. Likewise, man. Here in Santa Monica. It's, um, it feels like this one's a long time coming. I say that because I've been familiar with your content for a long time, although we, ha- we hadn't actually sort of connected until recently. Um, but this morning I was, I did a workout at Gold's gym and I just felt really excited to, to sit down with you. And I was kind of like asking myself, where is that excitement coming from? And I think the root of it is that if you think about the, the nutrition sort of landscape today, there's, to me, it feels like there's little walls between, uh, diet tribes and um you know i can put my hand up i think um we've all probably contributed at some stage to to the erection of those those walls but um i think it's really healthy to be able to sit down with people that have different philosophies and different diets and be able to chat in a sort of healthy manner and um, stress test some of our ideas and um, be open to hearing different perspectives. So um, all that to say, I, I think you do a great job with all of the content that you put out and um, really excited to see what we cover today. No, oh, it's gonna be fun, man. It's always fun to take a look, you know, reach across the aisle, you know, and I, it's, it's funny when I look at people that I have, uh, you know, over the course of the last decade have on the surface disagreed with, Commonly, you find that you, you disagree on about five to ten percent of things, mm-hmm. <laughs> but the line share, which is the big picture that people should be focused on, uh, tend to agree on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's those polarizing aspects that I guess are more uh, propagated by the algorithm um, and and create a bit more engagement and um, act as as better headlines as well. So. Um, you're right. I think we can sometimes become a bit distracted. And ultimately what ends up happening is people just get very confused. You know, where do I start? What are the most important things for my health that I can do? Um, so I think it would be good if we can clear clear up some of those um, distractions. I thought actually, though, a, a nice fun way to maybe start this was um, I, I want to throw some assumptions at you. 
and um, we can maybe have a bit of a laugh at these. Don't take any of these personally. <laughs> <laughs> the, the first one, and I always like to know this. Um, I feel like it tells me a lot about the person I'm speaking with. I'm going to say that you are an animal lover in general, but I think you're a dog person more than a cat person. That's a fair assumption. Okay. Me too. I think cats are beautiful, but um, yeah, dogs are very special. I've been to Santa Barbara. I know you've spent a bit of time there. I'm going to assume that you've never eaten at a place called Oliver's in Montecito. I know of Oliver's, oh, but I've never eaten there. Okay. I, I thought so. It's a plant-based restaurant. Um, I've been there once. It was great. Grocery-wise, I am going to assume that you shop at Whole Foods and you tend to buy organic, but you're not attached to it. Pretty accurate. I do tend to buy organic, but I'm not attached to it. But the lion's share of my shopping comes from Trader Joe's usually. Um, Whole Foods... I don't have any problem with Whole Foods, but it really comes down to a little bit more convenience. And I'm a creature of habit, and Trader Joe's has my simple essentials that I tend to have, and it makes it easy. But yeah, Whole Foods kind of kind of irritates me a little bit. It's a weird vibe. <laughs> Training-wise, and we just spoke a little bit off-air about what you're doing, um, I th- I'm going to assume that you like to do your cardio workout earlier in the day in a fasted state and if you had complete control and your preference would be to do resistance training later in the day after you've eaten something if i had all the time in the world yes yes uh but unfortunately i don't i've got two small kids uh and I'm very, very focused on spending time with them. So for me, I like to get my workout done as much as I can before they even wake up. Uh, so that means resistance training early in the day, which by default just ends up being fasted, even though I'm not married to resistance training fasted. It's just a convenience thing for early in the morning. How many days a week are you doing resistance training? I'd say four to five. Yeah. So there's a number of days where I have resistance training on top of cardio days, you know, where I'm a runner more than anything, uh, as far as cardio is concerned. So I will almost invariably run in the morning, running in the afternoon. Just, I feel doggone sluggish, man. I just, I just, it doesn't work for me. I mean, I'll get it done, but the actually funny thing is a lot of times my times are faster in the afternoon, but I just don't feel good. I just don't feel right. So, you know, anyway. I think you might have the biggest biceps of any runner that I've seen. So we, we might circle back to resistance training and, and, and get some insights with regards to the way you structure that. Well, they're an encumbrance to my running. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think that at one stage you were very heavily into, I guess, quote unquote biohacking, but today I'm not sure if you would consider yourself a biohacker. No, I, I don't hope I don't offend people when I say this, but I have a little bit of a, like a, a I'm a little bit repulsed by that term nowadays. <laughs> you know, I think I called myself that back in the day because I just didn't know what I was. You know, I, I think and I think I thought biohacking was something completely different. You know, um, I thought biohacking was much more just uh, kind of hacking the human body as far as even nutrition is concerned, timing. 
But now I come to find out that's just life. And uh, it's like not really biohacking, whereas biohacking today has a connotation of manipulating pharmaceuticals and things like which, which, you know, if that's someone's problem, but I, I feel like, no, I definitely don't consider myself a biohacker, but that's a good, accurate assumption. Okay. Next, I, I'm going to assume that you, you must do some type of cold plunging, um, perhaps cold plunging and sauna at least two or three times a week. Dude, I love that we're doing assumptions because we're breaking down some stereotypes. <laughs> this is cool because like, I, it's interesting because I just, uh, I'm going to preface this a little bit. By the way, we can also, we can reverse this at any stage. Oh no, it's all good. Like, <laughs> with, throw uh, some back. <laughs> you know, I had Peter Atia uh, in my office a couple of days ago and we were talking specifically about cold plunge and I kind of joked about how I was like, it's a little trendy right now. And he's like, is it, is that, is it the thing? And I was like, oh dude, look on Instagram. Like everyone's cold plunging. He's like, oh, I just don't know. I don't spend that much time on Instagram. So we talked about this a tiny bit. Do I, I own a cold plunge? Yes. Um, I own multiple saunas. Do I cold plunge frequently? No. I feel like I get enough reactive oxygen species. Uh, I get enough oxidative stress from my life and my workouts where I don't need to add an additional hormetic stressor. Plus, I'm a very data-driven person when it comes to those kinds of things, especially how I spend my time. You know, what I put in my body, yes, but how I spend my time, that's my most precious commodity. So if I'm going to, you know, I can look at what I put in my body and look at data and see how split it is or whatever and make a decision. But when it comes down to my time, I really do look at that a lot. And there's just no compelling data for me to say that like cold plunge is going to extend my life. Cold plunge is going to make me perform better. Cold plunge is going to make me grow bigger muscles. It's going to make me recover better. However, the data is kind of there with sauna. The longevity data with sauna is pretty strong compared to cold plunge where it just kind of doesn't exist. And Peter T and I were talking about this specifically when he went over to uh, Sweden and was looking at this when he was filming the limitless stuff. And he, he said the same thing. He said like, yeah, we see data with sauna, but cold plunge, eh. However, I do like how it makes me feel. I do like jumping in freezing cold water. It makes me feel like alive. I definitely get an adrenaline rush of some kind, but I also get a serious adrenaline dump like two hours later where I feel like I need to take a nap. Um, I'm lean, so maybe really cold water affects me more. Uh, Have you yeah. looked at any of the the research, and I know it's, it's very preliminary, um, looking at cold plunging and brown fat metabolism? Yeah, it's kind of wild. I mean, you're not in there long enough to really elicit a powerful brown fat you know, activation or beijing of white fat to brown fat. Where the potential evidence lies, and you've probably seen this, is during the warm-up period afterwards. You know, you get out and you let yourself go through that period of being really finish cold. in the cold. Yeah, yeah. Right. So that seems to be where it's strong. However, I don't know. Like you, you see, people will say you should be go into a sauna and then go into a cold plunge. Like that's supposed to be the you know quote unquote order uh, for that reason because you get out of the cold plunge and you're supposed to have this warming up period where you have this, it's not so much the activation, it's the beijing, right? With, with brown fat, we have the two sides of the equation. We have the, the, uh, the activation, which is the activation of what's already existing in your body, or you have the browning or the beijing where you're converting fat, you know, white fat into brown fat. When you are lean and you are healthy, you don't need to convert a lot. You need to activate more. So you're not like, you're healthy, I'm healthy, we both work out a lot. We're gonna be like pissing up a rope to try to like squeeze a little bit more brown fat conversion, if that makes sense. We're better off being like, how do we activate what we've got? Which 
you know, in my opinion, it's better to just turn the thermostat down to 65 degrees and just sit in a relatively cold room throughout the day. Uh, so I kind of got destroyed on Instagram one time when I said that I, I went in my, I was in Tahoe. I have a place in Tahoe and it was really cold. It was like 12 degrees outside and my cold plunge was frozen over and it was like really damn cold. And I hopped in the cold plunge and then immediately went into my sauna and people just destroyed me. You're doing it wrong. That's the wrong order. And it was at that moment where I'm like, oh, I triggered something. All right. People are really tribal about this whole thing. So I, I was like, why? Like, tell me why. I'm like, oh, it's, you're killing the brown fat, you know, activation. I'm like, first of all, like with all due respect, I don't want to sound like a conceited jerk or anything, but I'm like at the time, five, 6% body fat. I was like, if I, if I didn't hop in that sauna right afterwards, it would be utterly miserable. Like it takes me a long time to warm back up. And they're like, well, you're killing the brown fat activation by jumping in the sauna right afterwards. So well, on the contrary, up in Tahoe, about 12 people die per year from cold shock jumping into the cold water from the ambient temperature. And my point in saying that is like, if you're in really, really cold water and you go from hot to ice cold, if you have a heart condition, you put yourself at serious risk, uh, much more so than if you did the opposite. Yeah. There's certainly some contraindications. I think a lot of the research, both on ice and on sauna, admittedly, is observational. And there, there probably needs to be more clinical trial data on both modalities. I mean, if you think about sauna and the observational data, um, and we could, we could perhaps apply this to nutrition as well, but um, people that are, have access to sauna and are doing sauna more regularly, they're probably also adopting a number of other healthy behaviors, yep. right? Yep, and depending on the area that they live in, uh, their socioeconomic status. Right, exactly. If you can afford a sauna, you can probably afford to eat better food. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. However, it's kind of interesting, you know, everyone toots the heat shock protein horn all the time, which is interesting, and there's definitely something there. There absolutely is something there, but, what I find interesting about Asana and what I like about Asana is the pure as day fact that it's an exercise mimetic. So it's not going to replace cardio for me, but if I feel like I need to get my heart rate up and get a good sweat on, it just feels damn good. Mm. And it seems to help with blood pressure as well, which is obviously a huge risk factor for cardiovascular disease. Um, okay. I'm going to assume that when it comes to beverages, I don't think you drink much if any alcohol at all i think you maybe you might have a glass of wine occasionally and then when it comes to coffee or tea i think you're more of a coffee man uh, so you're you're somewhat accurate on the alcohol side i haven't had a drop since when i was overweight so it's been over 12 years so that was a big thing for me when i said okay this is time to like get my life back in order alcohol was one of the first three things that I cut out, you know, it was Jack in the box that I cut out and then it was alcohol and it was just going out past 9 PM. That was like, those were like rules for me. And, uh, so I just, and dude, I mean, who knows? Like so many, I did so many things at once. It was impossible to, uh, isolate the variable, but what's Jack in the box for, for any Australian oh, yeah. listeners? So Jack in the box is a, uh, like a bottom of the barrel, uh, fast food <laughs> joint here in the States. And it was a lifelong indulgence of mine that uh, was to get these jack and their, their tacos jack-in-the-box tacos but they're barely even a taco like they are uh, they're so riddled with grease that the shell becomes translucent and whatever product is inside they call it beef 
but it's not, I don't know what it is. It's who knows what the heck it is. You know, there's probably about 250 calories in one little taco and, you know, you buy them for two tacos for 99 cents. <laughs> you know, that was like, that was a big thing. Was it just the taste or have you, have you kind of examined that, that behavior retrospectively and thought about what was the driving force? Oh, we could, we could get into that for sure. Um, I'm not sure if you saw my interview with Chris Williamson, but, you know, I went deep into my OCD childhood, my mother's you know, mental illness and, and, and a lot of that. And I think I had a number of coping mechanisms. So yes, the taste for sure. But, uh, there was, you know, the only way that I really got my mother's love as a child was if I was running because she was a runner. And if I, so I ran my first marathon when I was 11 years old and uh, ran my first 10 K when I was six. And it was not like I was pressured into it, but it was just like, I had to do what mom was doing. And it was always a celebratory thing, like after long runs to get Jack in the box. And that stuck with me through high school. Like when I was running cross country, after cross country practice, I'd go get Jack in the Box tacos. And then when I was in my 20s and I was very overweight, it was just, you know, times 12. <laughs> so a lot more Jack in the Box tacos without the running. Uh, so they did taste good, but there was also just a, a, a comfort there. Yeah, I want to I circle back to that when we talk about weight loss and um, weight regain and maybe some of the different factors that could be af- affecting someone who's trying to lose weight or or trying to reduce their hunger or desire for these um very seductive foods in this food environment that we find ourselves in um coffee oh, i'm tea. a tea guy uh, green tea green tea yeah okay so i'm not opposed to coffee i was coffee. thinking coffee and maybe dunking some butter in that yeah see this is the stereotypes <laughs> man <laughs> so funny it's, just, it's, it's great i mean i did definitely went through my bulletproof coffee type phase but I've never, ever been a big butter guy. It was always MCT oil in it for me. Interesting. I, I just never could wrap my, I guess like even as like a low carb guy, I never could wrap my head around like the benefits of extremely long chain fats in the morning outside of satiety. And like, I just didn't like for me, the benefits of quote unquote butter coffee or bulletproof coffee was the brain effect. And there's solid literature on MCTs in the brain. And I just didn't make sense. I was like, why would I, why would I? F this up by like, you know, cryomicrons being occupied with, you know, a but- butter that I'm melting, which is completely different from eating butter at a room temperature form because the way the cryomicrons get saturated, it just didn't never make sense to me. Um, and I didn't blindly do it. So I didn't start doing a bulletproof coffee type modality until I was at least decently versed in biochem. So when I first started losing weight, it was just black coffee because that's just what I did anyway. Um, but yeah, I was, I went through a phase where like, you know, when I was very overweight, where I was drinking anywhere from like six to 10 fully leaded monster energy drinks per day, uh, which definitely was not good, but no, I'm a huge green tea guy. And I cut caffeine out after about 11, just because it definitely affects right. my sleep, even so, with tea. So coffee, MCT, no more, or you still no more, have it? No more. And I, if I do have coffee, I'll have decaf. I yeah. just, then it feels different. I mean, maybe it's the theanine and green tea. Maybe it's psychosomatic because I'm getting some antioxidants, but I'm just a big tea guy. Do you like matcha? love matcha yeah yeah i mean that's potent though so. yeah okay let's let's unpack this so i think you said 12 years ago is when you lost a lot of weight um so yeah walk walk us through that my understanding is there was a few things that happened in your life um sort of moments that made you pause and reflect on your own health can you shed some light on that have you heard my i mean you've probably heard my jack-in-the-box story then right i've heard parts of it i've also um read 
I think your dad was diagnosed with cancer. Yeah. So my dad was diagnosed with cancer, um, actually towards the end, like kind of towards my transformation, like, but he was getting sick and hadn't been diagnosed yet when I was really overweight. So it was like, he was just battling with his health, but didn't have the diagnosis yet. Uh, the biggest piece for me, and people always kind of chuckle at this was remember those whole Jack in the box things. Well, when I was in my early twenties, when I was overweight, I was in like commission only, uh, I was in a commission only job and then kind of got into the private equity world and the healthcare healthcare world, ancillary lab services. When you say overweight, what are we talking? Uh, I was about 295 pounds at my heaviest. Okay. Yeah. So almost hit 300, never actually hit 300. So I was big dude, you know, and I went from being a very skinny runner to blowing up. And I've talked about this before. It, it truly was what happens if you get in the mindset of trying to gain weight to bulk and then just letting it all go to crap. You know, it's just like, I, I just didn't really work out anymore. I just ate like that and became very sedentary and very high stress, like over a period of two or three years. So the weight gain just piled on really, really quick. So I don't want to discourage people when they think that, oh, Thomas was obese his whole life and he battled this and battled lifelong obesity and lost weight and turned his life around. No, it was very much so self-inflicted. I mean, I, I lived a terrible lifestyle and perhaps, you know, my younger fitness experience as a, as a young kid and as a teenager, I'm sure it helped, made it, made it easier for me because I don't want to sound like a jerk when I say that it, like it wasn't terribly difficult for me to lose weight. Um, I just had to flip that switch in my head. So I, I just hate steering people wrong. I, I just want to be authentic with that. However, you know, there were things that didn't work for me. You know, I tried doing like the six meal a day type thing. It just didn't work because... You know, I could say, oh, because insulin. No, I mean, I think I think seven years ago, Thomas probably would have said that. Uh, but now I think I realized that like the more that I was, the more opportunities I had to overeat, the more that I would. You know, so for me, like fasting worked well for me at that point in time because it was just an off, on off switch. Like it was just like, okay, to stay away from food. That's how my brain was wired. But anyway, jack in the box. So I'm, uh, at that time, I would have meetings on the other side of town and I would, during that time, go to Jack in the Box after meetings because I was on another side of the city where I wouldn't really get recognized as much in my mind. <laughs> Stupid. So I would go to Jack in the Box. So I went, rolled through Jack in the Box. I got my tacos and I pulled into a space right outside the drive-thru and I'm sitting there eating and I'm just like listening to music in my car. And then this green forerunner drives by and it's a friend of mine, but not a close friend, just an acquaintance. And when you he, say you didn't want to be recognized, I just didn't want to be seen. I, I, so even at close to 300 pounds, I did not want to be the fast food drive through guy. Okay. Like I just knew that it was bad. You right. know, I knew that, like I knew what I was doing. Like it was, it was a completely like shame, guilt, terrible spot where I was just like really was depressed sitting in my car eating, you know? And were you in the public eye then, or you were more no, concerned about friends and family, colleagues? Yes, yeah, totally. And just, I've always been a people pleaser to my detriment. I mean, it's, it's, I'm getting better at it now through years of therapy and understanding that, you know, I just need to be my true authentic self, but always a people pleaser. So cared a lot what people would think. And I had a level of body dysmorphia where I didn't really like think about how unhealthy I was. I was clinically diabetic at that time. I was, you know, my fasting glucose was 144. So, I mean, it was definitely like I had calls to action, but I didn't care. And I've been with my wife since high school. So I was with her at this time. Anyway, so I'm eating, eating my tacos and this guy drives by and it's a friend, but not a close friend. And he waves to me so nonchalantly like, Hey, like Tom, what's up? Like, this is what he would expect me to do. And it was that moment when I'm like, wait a minute, like what the hell? Like this dude, he didn't throw his arms up being going like, oh my God, Thomas is eating Jack in the Box. He's looking at me saying, 
yeah, that's what I would expect that guy to do. It was just that moment where I'm like, this is the lens that people see me in. And it just clicked, man. And like, I went to Jack in the Box like one more time after that. I mean, I, I've been since to get like an iced tea and stuff like that, don't get me wrong. But like I went to Jack in the Box and got tacos like one more time after that. And it was like two weeks later and it was just like, no, like this didn't even feel right. So that flipped a switch in my head. And we kind of joke that I was a little bit driven by shame. Like it was like the shame just kind of got me where I'm just like, damn, like that's what people see me as. And that ability to be quote unquote shamed into things has been a, a little bit of a recurring theme in my life to where I think I'm a hopelessly humble person sometimes to where like I really do try to like, if people give me constructive criticism, I do want to take it. I don't want to just be a jerk. And like that was like, that in a weird way was like this criticism where I'm like, this is how he sees me. Like, this is not what I want to see myself as. I didn't want to, I didn't immediately say I want to get ripped. I didn't want to, I'm just like, no, I can't be the jack in the box guy. I got to get my diabetes under control. You know, I got to get this, this has got to, it's got to change. There's some, some similarities there with, I mean, would you describe it as an addiction? Have, have you ever been asked that before? Oh yeah. Cause I was also at the time very much so addicted to benzodiazepines. So right. I was popping Xanax like mad. So, I mean, yeah. it was like. I think addictions are a recurring theme in my life as well. Yeah. But I'm, I'm thinking that kind of shame that you were feeling is probably not too dissimilar to someone who has a porn addiction or who has a gambling addiction and um, is, is kind of trying, hoping that other people around them don't see that. Yes. Keeping it to themselves, but still feeling and experiencing that shame. So there's that tension between um, the indulgence and the shame. Um, so for you, it seems like the shame sort of won out to some degree. Yeah, it was a constant tug of war, but it won at that point. Mm -hmm. Right. So how does that play out? How do you, what are the steps that you took? The, the, the steps towards changing uh, certain behaviors in your life so that you didn't end up back at Jack in the box. Yeah. I mean, so the first one was drawing that clear line in the sand with fast food. Like that was just a very big thing. It was a recurring theme in my life with the fast food. So I just cut that out. That was like step one, right? Is that something that you just told yourself or you had to communicate to your no, partner, I knew friends it. and like you had to no, have it was accountability? Just it was self-talk. I mean, I knew that was terrible behavior. There was no like, again, I, I wasn't fooling anybody. I wasn't even fooling myself. I knew every time I'd go through a drive-thru, that's not, that's not good behavior. Like it doesn't matter whether you're vegan, keto, paleo, whatever. Like I think most people agree that fast food is not good. And it was, you know pretty obvious. So that was the first real step for me. I did try, you know, Tupperwareing my food and things like that, like a bodybuilder. And it just didn't, that just didn't work for me. It was just too time intensive. So at the time, just given the world that I was in, there was a few people that I worked with that had had some success with intermittent fasting. And they told me, you know, Hey, this might really work well for your kind of mentality. You're a really on off, like hard charging guy. And yeah, I, I did try it. And at the time I was doing much more of like a daily intermittent fasting thing where I just was basically skipping breakfast, but it worked so well for me over that first six months. Cause I lost like 50 pounds in that first four or five months. You know, it was pretty, pretty impressive. And that and was the main change that you made. That was at that time. And the first, that was the first stage, you know, it was just, it was just eliminating breakfast. So, I mean, flash forward to, you know, how I did things back in like maybe 2016, 17. Yes. Was I a little overzealous? on promoting fasting. Yeah, I probably was, but man, I, it was the only friggin' thing that worked for me at the time. Like it was just like, this changed my life really quick and it was very, very fast. Um, and then after that, I kind of got a little bit more nuanced with how I wanted to fast. I, I was like, I, I again was smart enough to realize that if I'm, if I'm doing this every day, my body's going to adjust to it. 
So without really having keen biochemistry knowledge in that world, granted what I was doing for work, I was in biomedical sales. So I understood how to articulate biochemistry mainly to physicians and had a lot of uh, like formal training in that world, although I don't have a degree in that field. So I understood how to, how to explain it. And I think that's why I do an okay job at what I do now is because I, I know how to sell the idea of it. I'm good at that. Um, so with that, you know, there were people that I respected in that community and some were physicians, some were not. And they're the ones that kind of turned me on to it and where I realized, well, okay, if this is caloric restriction via this phase, like my body's going to adapt if thermogenesis, I'm going to adapt. So then I kind of restricted and started fasting like four days a week with longer periods. And then I developed, you know, an interest in the ketogenic diet because I understood sort of that common denominator of fasting ketones, ketogenic diet and ketones and kind of how that worked. Uh, and I became very, very interested in that. And then the rest of the weight came off over the next year, year and a half. And uh, it just felt like a lifestyle that I could maintain. You mentioned before um, insulin. How do you, how do you kind of think about obesity and overweight today, um, and the the incidence of it? What do you what do you think is is driving it at the at the core? At the risk of sounding very, uh, I don't even know what the word would be. I think it's a serious mental illness that we're dealing with. And when I say mental illness, I don't want to say there's something wrong with people. They're sick. But I think we're dealing with a serious mental epidemic, uh, whether it be massive coping mechanisms, whether it be, you know, a combination of that with hyperpalatability. But I think there's, I think we need to be looking there more than anything now. I think that uh, we talked about this a little bit offline. I think there's, you know, do we need more weight loss trials? Do we need more of these? Or do we need to start looking at what's making people tick and what's making people eat? Yeah. You know, If you've tuned in to the many episodes I've done focusing on cardiovascular disease, the leading cause of death globally, you'll be well aware that ApoB is a better biomarker for measuring our risk of having a heart attack or stroke than LDL cholesterol. The only problem is that not every pathology lab is set up to test ApoB levels. Fortunately, this has now been made easier by Inside Tracker, a leading health and wellness company founded in 2009 by experts in aging, genetics, and biometric data from Harvard, MIT, and Tufts that provides lifestyle advice based on your blood test results. With the new edition of ApoB, InsideTracker's ultimate plan now analyzes 44 biomarkers, including metabolic health markers like HbA1c, triglycerides, and blood glucose, important nutrients like vitamin D and iron, as well as hormones like cortisol, sex hormone binding globulin, free testosterone, and total testosterone before giving you science-backed lifestyle advice to optimize your health and longevity. Your data tells the story of your health. With Inside Tracker, get to know your story and create a lifestyle that delivers better health for longer. Get 20% off the entire Inside Tracker store. To get started and redeem this offer, go to insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. That's insidetracker.com forward slash Simon. Hey friends, the scientific evidence on lifestyle habits that lead to longevity is clear. Now it's time to put this knowledge into action. I'm excited to announce the Living Proof Longevity Challenge, a 12-week program to build evidence-based lifestyle habits to optimize longevity. 
My team and I have transformed over hundreds of hours of conversations with experts on aging, nutrition, and exercise into a life-changing 12-week program that will challenge you to develop habits that lead to a longer, better life. This is a unique opportunity to gather health data about yourself that has the potential to change your life for the better. You'll start by testing 10 longevity biomarkers that tell the truth about where your longevity stands right now, today. Following that, you'll get a personalized longevity score to guide your 12 weeks of habit building that will boost your score and improve your biomarkers for the better. After the challenge, you'll retest your 10 biomarkers and see the proof of how powerful these science-backed habits really are. Head over to theproof.com forward slash living proof to download your zero cost copy of the Living Proof Longevity Challenge today. That's theproof.com forward slash living proof. Look forward to joining you on this journey. Do you, you would have seen Diet Fits and it's a study out of Stanford, but there's, there's a bunch of different like meta-analyses comparing different diets. And obviously there's the um, sort of two opposing models, I guess the energy balance model and the carbohydrate insulin model that different research groups have kind of put together as ways of explaining what is, is causing an increase in energy intake and weight gain. Um, and what I find really interesting is that when you, and, and I'm sort of extending, adding on to what you just said then about not needing any more weight loss trials, is that when you look at these trials that are comparing like a low carb diet with a low fat diet, I think in the short term, there does seem to be some benefit from low carb. Like in the first six months, there's a little bit of a benefit there. But then when you get to, to 12 months or two years, on the aggregate, the weight loss is very similar. And uh, we see adherence seems to be a problem. Um, but Diet Fits did this beautiful waterfall plot. And for each group, the low carb group and the low fat group, they plotted how individuals actually did. So on the aggregate, the weight loss in both groups was. Uh, at 12 months was about the same but within each group some people in low carb did really well some people not so well in low fat same thing some people responded really well some not so well and they were in that study trying to to look they looked at a few different predictors so they were measuring insulin resistance and i think three different genes that are associated with obesity to see oh can we sort of predict who would be better go better on a low carb versus low fat based on insulin resistance or a certain gene? And they couldn't. So there were the, the, the genes that they looked at anyway, and I'm sure there's probably more than three, and insulin resistance didn't predict who was successful. And so I'm kind of left thinking about this data, and I have a few questions, and I'll kind of just throw this out there and get your thoughts. But... Um, the people that were successful, say on low carb, I wonder if they are just people that have certain behaviors and they would have also been successful on low fat and vice versa. The people that did poorly on low carb because of certain emotional or behavioral social elements or perhaps genes that they weren't looking at would have done poorly on, on both. Um, I guess a couple of questions here that I have. One is... Um, do we need to 
just all accept that each individual, an individual may do better on a particular macronutrient ratio. Some may do better on high carb, some may do better on low carb. Um, and secondly, what do you think may help explain? Yeah, I have some theories. Uh, you know, for example, I tend to thrive very well on a low carbohydrate diet with a caveat that I really thrived well on a relative, relatively low carb diet when my fats were also low, independent of calories. So I would have, well, I shouldn't say independent, but even if my calories were, you know, eucaloric between that's anecdotal. Uh, but I do respond very well to low fat. Uh, but from a lifestyle perspective, I adhere better to low carb. So it's quite interesting, a little bit of a conundrum there. Now, I do feel that personally, as a long distance runner growing up with lots of running under my belt, by the time I was you know 13, I'd run multiple marathons and well over 20 half marathons. So I can't help but wonder if epigenetically, I conditioned my body to be very, very good at oxidizing fats. And that is a purely theory, uh, but I've ran it through multiple people that are respected and they say, you know, that's a very valid theory, you know, especially like at a young age when epigenetically you can make a lot of changes. Am I an outlier where I just really thrived with it? And it would explain multiple, multiple things. It would explain why when carbohydrates were reduced, I would lose weight. And it would explain why when fats would reduce dietarily, it would kind of shift to my body oxidizing my onboard fats a little bit easier because it just knows how to use them better. And I've talked about this in content and sometimes it discourages people because they're like, oh, well, shoot, you're just an outlier. Well, no, I mean, it doesn't mean that it's not going to work for you. And it doesn't mean for sure that I'm an outlier. It's just a theory. But I do think that you're correct. I think that being able to uh, adhere is probably the most important thing. And I think that there, you know, when we look at the interesting data that we're seeing now on the region of the brain that fats tend to light up and activate, you know, we're talking more, um, a little more hippocampal. We're talking a little more things that are associated with sensation. And then with sugar carbohydrates, your different region of the brain, that's a little more associated with, uh, with taste and a little more dopamine hit. So does our history dictate what is more appealing to us and or addictive, right? So it's like, we have our history, like how our brain is really operating. We have pure just fundamentals of just how we're wired that we can't change perhaps that makes it where maybe you are going to get addicted to fats easier and I'm going to get addicted to carbs easier. That's data we just don't know. And rather than maybe focusing on just constant weight loss trials, maybe we should be focusing on how our brains are impacted by various macronutrients and but again, it's difficult. You know, you can't just take a large cohort of people and like, how do you how do you divide those cohorts up to really get to the bottom of it? Yeah, and when I think of the two models, there was a paper written recently on the energy balance model and the carbohydrate insulin model, and this goes back to what you said at the start around often you can focus on the disagreement, but there's actually some agreement, irrespective of the kind of direction of causality. So carbohydrate insulin model sort of suggests that fat storage occurs first and then that drives increased energy intake energy balance is that increased energy intake drives fat storage irrespective of the models both sets of researchers point to these 
um, high glycemic, ultra-processed foods as being the primary problem with the diets. And you kind of, you combine that and you've got uh, two regions of the brain that are getting activated, right? I can't help but look from an evolutionary perspective. Like if you had, how many foods in nature have high amounts of carbohydrate and fat together? Just not a lot of them. I mean, you can find them, but they're not like insanely high amounts. So you're not going to like, there's not a whole lot of ultra fatty fruits. There's not a whole lot of, you know, it's just a very difficult situation. And I, so are we designed to be taking in high concentrated, not moderate amounts, but high concentrated amounts of carbohydrates and fat at the same time? Like, is that sort of our, is our operating system not really welcoming of that? That's a great point. That's often lost is that you can think of these ultra processed foods as purely high carb, but they're very often a high carb and high fat. Well, almost always, almost mm. always. Yeah. Um, that gets me thinking, did you see Kevin Hall's study where he looked at an unprocessed diet versus an ultra-processed diet? Yes. I mean, I haven't did, dove into the details of it, but I've seen... Okay. Well, he yeah. did this neat study, and it was in a metabolic ward, so it's like quite highly controlled, a crossover design. And he matched the macronutrients, and so fat's the same, carbs is the same, protein's the same, fiber's the same, sodium's the same. Matched all of that, but one diet was an unprocessed diet and the other is ultra processed and on average when people are eating that ultra processed diet despite leveling the playing field because that doesn't really happen in real life these ultra processed foods are much lower in protein usually lower in fiber Um, you know they have a lot of of properties that could um, lead to overconsumption. but despite matching all of those those in that arm of the study, people ate almost 500 calories more per day, right? And I was thinking the other day, it would be really interesting to to redo that study and have a third arm. I would love to know if you had an ultra-processed food group, but all of that ultra-processed food was keto. So you, again, you... you you obviously, you're not going to be matching there for carbohydrate content, but you would try and match for fiber and palatability, try and make these just as palatable, but we're taking out those carbohydrates. Do people still overconsume the 500 calories per day? What do you think? Do you think that, that people would still consume in excess of calories if all of the ultra-processed foods in our food environment were keto? Artificial sweeteners, yes or no? Yeah. Okay. So palatability is the same. Okay. So so imagine that we we sat down with all of the big food manufacturers and we said, guys, we understand what you can do to change your food products uh, in a way that we think will reduce obesity, but you can still make them taste just as delicious. You just have to reduce the carbohydrates in there, make them keto. You can have more fat and we can use artificial sweetness to make sure they taste good. Mm, no, I think people would gain just the same amount of weight, if not even more. I mean, it's there's still hyperpalatable garbage on keto. I mean, that's what you stated by sitting down with the food manufacturers. That that kind of happened. I mean, it's just you know that look at uh, look at all of them, man. I mean, they've all bought up keto brands. I'm not. I don't want to name out a bunch of names, but like you know, you look at High Key, you look at all these like 
they they're they're getting purchased by Kraft Heinz. They're getting purchased. This has happened. You know, they're like, okay, we'll test the waters with it. Let's see. You know, because they don't they don't particularly care about obesity. They just care about what they're moving. So if they say, okay, well, cool, we can check a box of doing something good too. But we have to remember that at the end of the day, man, and I, I know I'm the black sheep of the keto community when I say this, but I mean, fat stores easier as fat than carbohydrates do. And we have to accept that. I mean, carbs have seven different steps plus just to convert for de novo lipogenesis. That's, that's not bullshit. That's very real. And in a surplus, fat will store easier than carbohydrates will because there's just less energy involved in storing those fats. And some will say, well, we're an open thermodynamic system. We're not a closed thermodynamic system, so that doesn't matter. No, I think, it's still, I think it still matters. I think it's still the fact that fats will assimilate and synthesize. Fatty acid synthase is going to make that job a one-step job. So if you take something that is hyperpalatable, that is sweet, even whether it's with erythritol or sucralose or whatever, but it's calorically dense, I would argue that they're probably going to eat more of it. But then will they gain a lot of fat? I think if you look at a simple calorie model, they will. But perhaps there's other pieces there that we don't know. I mean, there's maybe there's pieces of uh, metabolic dysfunction that we don't know. Like if you take someone that's uh, this purely theoretical, but you know, they've got, let's say, 75% of their mitochondria are operating at normal capacity and 25% are dysfunctional. If putting them in that state allows the mitochondria to... Uh, regain access to fuel via a backdoor mechanism, i.e. ketones, and maybe going to restore the health of those mitochondria. And those mitochondria are going to function, their energy manufacturing is better, and then maybe they do lose weight. But that does not deny the fact that the calories still came into equation because now their resting energy expenditure just increased. So calories still matter. You get what I'm saying? Yeah. So I think to say that the calories don't matter is a little bit just disingenuous. I feel like they always matter, whether we're an open thermodynamic system, a closed thermodynamic system, whether carbon slim model matters or not. Why are we still throwing calories in calories out under the bus? It's still important. Yeah. Well, I think the carbohydrate insulin model still respects the first law of thermodynamics. It, it does in the scientific community, not right. in on Instagram. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean the actual, the actual model put mm-hmm. forward by the, the researchers, I think that model respects the first law of, of thermodynamics. It's just that that direction of causality is different. It's that these you know, high glycemic um, carbohydrate-rich foods are in, increasing insulin levels. We get increased fat storage, and then the increased fat storage drives increased energy or drives hunger and increased energy intake. Um, but ultimately, that model is still explaining um, obesity through an excess of calorie consumption. Yeah, exactly, which people don't realize. And well, with that, I mean, I want to kind of flip and ask you something. I mean, as far as high levels of insulin, high glycemic spikes, things like that, you know, if you are looking at your time in range for glucose, this is bona fide curiosity. Like, do you think having a high spike but coming down in an appropriate time is perfectly acceptable or more acceptable than cr- uh, mildly being chronically out of range? For That's example, a great question. Yeah, it's, I, I think about it a lot because I mean, I wear a CGM and I, I, I don't always, but I, I, I think time in range is probably the most important. Um, I noticed that you were a CGM. 
I'm not sure if you've listened to any of my conversations with um, Drew Harrisberg on my show. He has uh, type 1 diabetes, wears a CGM, and, and we talk about CGMs a lot. Um, maybe you can convince me of the use of CGMs in, in people without diabetes. Yeah. So I've been, I don't want to say critic. I, I, I guess just speaking candidly here, I felt companies have maybe put the, the cart before the horse in terms of do we fully understand for at a population level if you give cgms to people without diabetes does it lead to better food choices does it lead to an improvement in diet quality does it lead to an overall improvement in biomarkers not just one biomarker but blood lipids you know blood pressure whatever it is a sort of suite of things that we know are established with disease and i haven't seen any studies that have really been able to demonstrate that no well let me ask you a question like why do you why do you think i'm wearing a cgm another another stereotype or assumption here (laughs) um i don't know you're a biohacker (laughs) fuck you (laughs) no 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 we've clarified that that was a cheap shot um why are you wearing a cgm um probably you probably are you, are you in ketosis now no you're not in ketosis. I'm not sure. Yeah. Based on the data that I've read, I'm, I'm honestly not sure. Yeah. You can maybe explain to me what, what, what benefits you yeah. derive from it. So I don't wear one all the time. Uh, fun fact, I'm wearing one right now because I was filming a couple of videos uh, specifically testing specific foods. I saw someone thought you photoshopped. Oh my gosh, that was <laughs> hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's, there's a number of people, dozens of people. I I don't, I, I was just like, this is insane. Yeah, I know because it's mm. it's dark and then the background was dark. It looked like my tricep mm. was like demented and people were like, dude, you photoshopped your tricep. No, like look closer. I've so, seen the the tricep in real life, guys. They're real. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I don't wear one all the time. I wear one, you know, maybe a couple of months out of the year. Um, and for me, it's, it's I cross-reference data like between my or my whoop and my aura and i'm always looking for commonality and and looking at things i mainly become interested in how i respond differently to things when i'm sleep deprived uh, or when i'm under stress so i am less looking at how a food is treating me or how i'm responding to a food and i'm more interested in uh, variance in my like my stress uh you know if i get into an argument with my wife what happens and that's what's wild that's what's fascinating to me uh and it's a little bit just Things that I already know, like, yeah, okay, I know there's going to be a catecholamine effect here where I'm going to probably have an increase in my my, my glucose. Uh, but to see what happens and see like, okay, when I'm in a stressed state and I eat, I do spike more and I don't come down as easy. Uh, so for me, it's understanding those things and then cross-referencing that data with my strain and think, I don't expect people to do that. So why I wear one is simply because I'm just a hopeless, curious person when it comes to that. Like I just... I'm not going to find the answers, but I'm curious, you know, and I like to kind of test to be my own end of one on things. So to say that I wear one to say like, how am I going to respond to a banana? I mean, I've eaten just about every kind of food I can eat and I've seen it under CGM and I know typically how I respond to it. I do think that people that are interested and motivated in such a way could get benefit out of it. Uh, But more so, I think it teaches people in a way uh, that is opposite of what people in my typical metabolic optimization sphere would think. I try to teach people that just like we talked about that time and range, if you eat that higher glycemic rice cake, for instance, 
If you spike high, who gives a shit as long as you come back down? So as long as you come back down and you know your your insulin is doing its job, I think that's where people, there's the demonization of insulin that happens too. It's like, no, this is a very important hormone, like probably one of the most important peptide hormones. Why are we, why are we talking shit on it? It doesn't make sense. So like if you eat that rice cake and you spike high and you, but you come down fast, your body did what it's supposed to do. You should not judge a food based on how it spiked you. You should judge a food based on how you respond by not coming down. And that tells you more about you than it does the food. So we have this problem where I think it could cause people to really like look at food strange. Like I can't eat that because it affects me. That's where I think the, the studies that look at diet quality, but then test different instructions. Because what I'm hearing is you're sort of suggesting that the utility of it depends on the instructions that you're giving that person. How are they interpreting that data? And I guess one of my concerns is that if you take the approach of flatter the better, then, I mean, I could think of all sorts of dietary swaps where you could potentially swap out a food that we know is consistent with good cardiometabolic health in place of a food that's not, just to get a sort of flatter blood glucose. But I mean, at the same time, we have no window into what's that doing to lipids and, and a whole bunch of other things at the same time. It would be cool if we could, uh, you know, people would do lipid tolerance tests as well. You know, that's a real thing that is underrated. Yeah, I'd you know? love to have the the continuous blood glucose monitors also measuring blood lipids yeah. con- continuously. Dude, it's it's so important because, I mean, just a simple fact, it's like I, if I eat some almonds and then I eat some uh, like honey roasted almonds, it's like you could say, okay, well, you attenuated that spike, but what's happening to lipids at that time. Better yet, let's say something that's not a, a mono or a polyunsaturated fat, let's say something like a saturated fat, which has potential uh, ramifications as far as insulin resistance is concerned. You know, if I ate a stick of butter along with some sugar, you're telling me that, well, you attenuated that spike. So hmm. good job. Let's double click on that because I think that's might be news to some people, particularly coming from someone who is in the low carb community. So what, so what are you saying about saturated fat? With respect to insulin resistance yeah i mean well there's a, a number of different demonstrated pathways in which it seems to affect insulin resistance whether it comes down to uh you know toll-like receptor 4 uh, tlr4 which uh, essentially affects how we uh, create insulin receptors how we express insulin receptors it doesn't mean you eat saturated fat and you automatically have an immune response it means that once again when you're in a state of overnutrition, i think that's the operative word when you're in a state of overnutrition, the saturated fat lever seems to be a bigger lever to pull as far as a negative effect. So if we were, if you and I were both at one calorie above our maintenance, we are both in surplus and you ate a bunch of monounsaturated fats and I ate a bunch of saturated fat, arguably the research suggests that I am going to reduce my insulin sensitivity more than you. I mean, that's fairly strong data. And, you know, there's a number of mechanistic trials and a number of our data and a number of, of rodent model studies, but there's a, still a handful of even, you know, human trials that have suggested that as well, where you look at, you know, the triglyceride level as associated with uh, saturated fats and how that impacts mainly the expression of insulin receptors. That's a very real thing. And I think that the low carb community should take a lesson from that because unfortunately, we have this uh, 
such a dogmatic view that we're you know we're not willing to look at that like yeah i've always found that interesting i mean my my i guess approach to macronutrients is i think at the end of the day choose the ratio that if you if if you're trying to lose weight choose whatever ratio it is that feels easiest for you to be in a calorie deficit and if that's low carb amazing if that's helping you lose weight um, if that's high carb amazing but i think no matter which direction you go that then there should be a conversation around quality so quality of the fat what type of fat is it and same on the carb side what type of carbohydrates are you eating because we know that fat and carbohydrates are just umbrella terms um and on that saturated fat piece there's i had richard johnson on my show i'm not sure if you've come across his work he's done a bunch of stuff on fructose looking at um, refined sugars and liver fat and also i spoke to alan flanagan about this and that's really really interesting data because we know alcohol we know refined sugars in a, a hypercaloric diet particularly drive uh, an increase in hepatic fat which creates insulin res- resistance in the liver and um, essentially when you become insulin resistant in the liver it's sort of like the tap on the bath that you, you can't turn off the spout and you just have excess blood glucose or, or glucose going into the blood and, and blood sugar levels go up um, but there's a, a bunch of research also looking at how different types of fat affect hepatic fat and different trials and you know some of these are not the longest term trials so they probably need to be further explored but it is interesting to me that when i look at that uh, in the trials comparing say saturated fats to polyunsaturated fats you, you do see on a on a um sort of ba- calorie equivalent basis in both diets you see an increase in hepatic fat and the saturated fat yeah. group yeah it's actually uh not sure if we're talking about the same study here, but it was like a, uh, a 55% increase or something mm. like that. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of always, I've always found it interesting when you jump on Twitter and there seems to be within the low-carb community a lot of people that are just adamant on defending saturated fat at all, all costs. And I kind of just think, I just wonder where that comes from. Why, why do you think people are uh, sort of not receptive to the idea that hey, they can stay low-carb, stay keto, but maybe swap some of the the sort of um foods in their diet to change that fat profile yeah i think it's a little bit of just like an anti-establishment type mindset i think it's just you know okay we're keto you know the whole world's against us like oh you like you like your you know your plant-based oils well screw you you know we're gonna eat butter i think it's a lot of it's out of spite i don't think they you know i've converted a lot of those people Let's put it that way. You know, if you get the right people that are open-minded, you know, have a large platform of a lot of low carbers, not so much, not as much now, but I, I lost a lot of them when I opened my eyes and said, I can't ignore this. Like I can't ignore the fact that I, with a platform my size, I can't be, I can't be just saying, go eat a bunch of saturated fat, like not in good faith, like knowing that it's just incorrect data to say that. Um, so I typically suggest people like say, like, Hey, a nice, a nice ground rule for you is 20% of your fat calories should be saturated fat or I shouldn't say should, I don't like that word, but that's a good number. Stick around there, you know, try to get the rest. I also say, Hey, like from a calorie standpoint, it actually works quite well. If, if someone is eating meat and you have, let's say, let's say you have two ribeye steaks and they're the same weight, the chances of those two ribeye steaks having 
equal calories is hugely slim because the marbling of fat, everything's going to be different. One ribeye steak might have 20 grams of fat. One might have 30, but on the surface, they look very similar. So I'm like, when you're actually trying to control things a little bit, and I understand not everyone's trying to do that, but it makes it a lot harder to gauge your calories that way. So I typically say like, hey, you know what? This is a fine thing for you. Like if you're, if you're eating meat, and I understand a lot of your audience, uh, you know, maybe uh, vegan, vegetarian, but I'm sure you have a lot that, that aren't as well. It actually works great because then you're like, you know what? Yeah, I'm going to control my saturated fat. Maybe I'll eat leaner meats. Maybe I'll eat leaner protein sources and I'll add my fats in where I can control them a little bit more and understand what I'm getting. I'm not saying everyone needs to be orthorexic and obsessive about this, but it was a pretty subtle shift for me to say, hey, like, you know what? No, I'm going to not eat fattier cuts of meat. I'm going to reduce the butter. I'm going to lean into my macadamia nuts. I'm going to lean into my avocados. I'm going to lean into my you know nuts that I can eat. I get some digestive issues from some, a lot of nuts, but uh, yeah. Yeah. I, I admire the, the awareness of responsibility that you just mentioned. I often think about that in terms of, and I, and you know, I'm speaking to a slightly different community. As you said, I think a lot of people that listen to this show are, they're, they're plant focused, it could be Mediterranean style diets or it could be vegetarian, it could be vegan, but I kind of feel responsible to try and pull people back t- towards the evidence when things get a bit crazy with, with claims. And I have noticed that you seem to be trying very hard to do the same at your end. Um, what was it with regards to saturated fat? over the years, like how did your views evolve? Why did they evolve? You know, I broke out of what I called the echo chamber a few years ago. Um, and my eyes just opened to a lot of things. You know, I was pretty hardly opposed to high amounts of fructose before. I still don't think high amounts of, you know, fructose are good. Obviously, I don't think high amounts of anything are good. But, you know, I took pretty firm stances. But I mean, I did... From fruit or... like No, just in general. Fruit? I mean, high fructose in general. But I mean, yeah. it's quite hard to get a ridiculous amount of mm. fructose from fruit if you're you know, paying attention, right? And even if you're not paying attention. What if you're a fruitarian? I guess, I mean, it's, right? I mean, as long as they're, they're moving, right? That's the hard part mm-hmm. is like when you take energy abundance, that's when it's a problem. That doesn't mean that they're eating pure fructose. I think people think all fruit is all fructose. Like, no, <laughs> like look at a kiwi. It's largely glucose, right? So it's, uh, that's a little bit of a moot point because like I think if someone's eating fruit, they're getting, depending, I mean, yes, you could choose a fruit that is, purely high fructose and what would happen if they ate only that but they were all if they're also in a deficit and you're phosphorylating ampk then mm, like there's no problem the right? hadza i think it, it consume a fair bit of fructose what's that the hadza yeah. tribe yeah, yeah and they stay pretty lean they do stay lean and so, they're very active right. yeah so i think it's you know we come right back down to this ampk you know activation and being able to like if you're in that proper deficit however that is done uh largely, especially through activity, you know, higher, you know, higher carbohydrate based diet than perhaps, but yeah, it's, uh, I had to open my eyes, man. I mean, part of it was like fiduciary responsibility too. I'm like, wait a minute. Like, you know, I've got this platform, like eyes are on me, brands are on me, but also having my kids, like I look at health different now having, I have a five-year-old and a three-year-old. And there's a couple of things like for one is like, I don't want my kids to grow up and be like, oh, my dad was the one-sided guy that just, you know what I mean? Like, I don't, I just don't want that. I don't want that for myself. I don't want that for them. I want them to, I really, truly, sincerely want them to like look at the internet and say like, wow, you know, no, my dad was pretty like even keeled and he was cool. And like, that was a big driver for me. 
It really was. So, I mean, I wish I could say that it was like I saw some compelling piece of evidence, but it was more so like, wait a minute, no, I'm doing this the wrong way. Like, I need to look at the bigger picture. I've got the resources now. I've got the team. Like, it would be irresponsible for me not to. Right. So do you do you keep an eye, of course, you keep an eye on um, biomarkers related to insulin resistance, blood glucose control, that side of things. Do you keep an eye on blood lipids as well? Yes, yeah. for sure. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, my cholesterol sits pretty low, around a total of 175. Um, you know, it's it's. I do keep very close attention to that. You know, VLDL is in very good shape. I mean, granted, I eat largely a Mediterranean diet, even when I'm low carb. So, yeah. So like, what? Yeah. So for people that are interested, you mentioned before uh, the sort of 80, 20, or 20 percent of fats being saturated type of very general uh, rule. Um, but from a food perspective, so what does that look like for you in terms of where you're getting your fats from? Yeah. So, I mean, my fats, you know, I do eat, uh, I don't eat a ton of meat, believe it or not. I mean, yes, I'm a, uh, I'm not, I'm not vegan. I'm not vegetarian, but a lot of my protein comes from cottage cheese, comes from yogurt, um, comes from eggs. I mean, I really do hover a lot of that, uh, closet vegetarian over here. Yeah. You, you, <laughs> hey, no, don't, don't even seriously then. Like I've actually <laughs> thought about being vegetarian because it's just like, uh, I just, I actually feel quite good. And this is like, I, you know, I, I put myself into like red meat. I don't even feel that good eating. Uh, the only red meat I'll really eat is it's typically ground. Uh, like I don't feel good diving into a big fatty steak. I just don't, I just don't feel that great. Um, careful, know. careful. You might, you might lose some of your audience here. <laughs> That's fine. That's fine. I think, I think most of them by now know where I stand on that. You know, I'm a red meat a couple times per week kind of guy. Um, you know, big emphasis on fiber for me. It always has been, uh, my fats are definitely a focus. I, I, I tend to periodize my diet where I go periods of higher fat, lower carb, not necessarily keto, and then moderately high carb, lower fat. I tend to kind of go back and forth with that. It seems to work really well for me from a body composition perspective. Uh, I don't really have an answer as to why, except because I try to keep food uh, you know, calories about the same, but I find that like every time I make a pivot, like once a month or so, I get like a nice newbie gain out of it. So if something happens, I don't really, you know, don't have an explanation. Yeah, it's like it's like a new a newbie gain every time I switch to uh, okay, I'm gonna go back to higher carb and or for me higher carb is no more than like maybe 175 or so. It's not super high carb, but lower fat, higher carb. Uh, so you know the bulk of my diet, I eat a lot of like regular olives. I eat a lot of mushrooms. A lot of my you know my starchy carbs are still coming from like purple sweet potatoes. I eat a ton of sweet potatoes, probably more than I should, just because just eat a ton of them. Uh, lots of asparagus, lots of Brussels sprouts. Those are really my, my staples as far as like, you know, the plant foods are concerned. Probably too many macadamia nuts. Uh, I'm a big fan of those. A lot of avocados, big into my olive oil. I already said olives, like anything kind of that monounsaturated. Um, right. So See, I, we have much more in common than many people might, might believe. I mean, my, cause my, my diet is, is plant-based, but it's probably quite different. And I've spoken about this particularly on Twitter is it's more of a higher fat plant-based diet than many would be either recommending or, or following in the plant-based community. Yeah. Where do you get most of your fats? Similar. So avocado, olive oil. I love olive oil. Um, nuts and seeds. Tofu has a lot of fat in it as well. So those would probably make up, I guess, the, the, the majority of my fats on a daily basis. There's some nut butters and stuff in there. Um, and yeah, I think my philosophy and approach on, on that, which is a little bit different to some in the plant-based community, is I think unsaturated fats are inherently beneficial. I don't think we need to fear 
fat and be trying to have a, a sort of low total fat diet. I think it could be helpful if someone is is following a high carb diet and it is really focused on weight loss, particularly adding in you know olive oil, these very calorie dense foods can make weight loss a bit harder for some people. Um, but I, I personally find I feel much better when I have uh, a higher amount of total fat in my diet. Yeah. How do you feel if you increase carbohydrate intake? Does it change you much? Or? Yeah, it does. I, I feel like I'm probably a little more sluggish in the afternoon. Um, so that's another reason energy levels for me are better. With And my diet's not low carb. I'd say it's like moderate carbohydrate. What's so, that like? Maybe same. It's roughly the same number as me. Maybe hundreds, two hundred. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, probably two hundred um, grams of carbohydrates somewhere ar- around that, um, and that leaves me feeling really, really good. But I do know, and I have friends who have slightly less fat and slightly more carbohydrates, and they feel great too. So I think you kind of need to play around with that. I guess the main point being that I I just don't think people need to fear unsaturated fats and i think like the whole dietary guidelines and sort of total fat recommendations i think that's starting to go out the window i think the recommendations to be aware of of limiting moderating saturated fat are good and necessary but i'm not sure there needs to be a sort of total fat um upper limit yeah i tend to agree and do you consolidate a lot of your carbohydrates if you do towards the latter half of the day for that reason for Mm. the yeah same here I'd say most of my carbohydrates are after my workout in that meal after the workout, which tends to be actually my second meal of the day and my dinner. And I've been playing around with this more recently um, following some episodes that I did with Courtney Peterson, who's looking at time restricted eating and also uh, meal timing and Emily Manoogian, who's works out of Sachin Panda's lab. And I have found and this is anecdotally that a slightly smaller dinner or less calories before i'm going to bed i'm sleeping better and my recovery seems to be better um is that something that we can generalize to everyone i'm not sure yeah i think it depends on training depends on a number of things i saw something interesting i can't remember where it was published uh, it was just relatively new but it was like regardless of uh, of calories what they did determine was that plant-based or animal-based, if uh, you took an active person, large meal or small meal at night, what really seemed to dictate their sleep for an active person was if they if they made their protein requirements. Um, so it was kind of interesting. So I feel like I, I agree with you because that's how I am too. And I usually do consolidate my carbohydrates towards the latter half of the day as I tend to sleep better, but they're not like a large bolus of food before bed. It's, you know, I cut it out three hours before bed generally. I try to be done with eating by six and I just don't touch anything or if I do, it's very light until then. Uh, but there's also times where like I can just tell that I just didn't get enough protein that day. So maybe, you know, I'll have a, even a protein shake before bed or something like that, or maybe a little bit of Greek yogurt just to get that protein level up. And that's something where the circumstance in which having a little food before bed actually helps me sleep. Yeah. That's the other sort of area that I would place quite a bit of focus on is the protein i want to make sure i'm getting enough total fat but i'm also prioritizing protein it is protein is harder 
to get on a plant-based diet in terms of um, hitting a certain amount if you're trying to optimize for hypertrophy without sort of blowing out your calories. So um, for me, I tend to lean more into tofu and tempeh and beans and less into whole grains and that sort of category of starches than some people because I'm ultimately I'm already getting enough fiber in the diet through all the vegetables and the legumes and and whatnot so that's the way that i kind of structure my own diet um you mentioned fiber before and this is another one where i think it's it's a little bit baffling for me given the data on fiber it's pretty solid um when you look at total mortality cardiovascular disease mortality um colorectal cancer breast cancer type 2 diabetes there seems to be these dose dependent benefits um you know more fiber in the the diet the better outcomes people tend to have and that's very consistent across the world it's been replicated a lot but there is this kind of growing trend uh, online where people would sort of have you believe that fiber well it's actually it's not an essential nutrient like a vitamin or mineral so do we really need it how do you feel about that Uh, i mean i'm a big fiber guy so i i i feel personally attacked (laughs) It's uh, I mean, I've always been a big fiber. I should say always. I mean, I never paid, didn't pay a lot of attention to it when I was overweight. But as long as I've been focusing on my health, I've been a huge fiber guy. And I think that uh, I've gone to a fair bit of war defending that hill. You know, it's uh, although I just at this point I don't try to fight with people that don't want to hear it. You know, if, if they're not open to it, you know, that's fine. But where I do try to convince people is uh, it's really difficult to sell insurance is what I always say. If I'm talking to someone in their 30s or 40s, it's very difficult to tell them, especially if they don't have kids and they don't look at it through that lens, about all-cause mortality and and, and just death and fibers association there. It feels a long way away. It feels a long way away where it's really difficult to, like, I'll worry about that when I'm 60. So perfectly good-hearted people that just, you know, they're just, they're just, I just want to feel good today. I just want to feel good today. And fiber bloats me, <laughs> you know, so I don't want to eat it or I'll worry about it later. So I try to look at, okay, what are short-term things where I can get people excited? And unfortunately, when you look at the short-term stuff, you do have to turn to more rodent model stuff. Uh, however, there are some human models that are still demonstrate this, but like things like, uh, you know, the benefit of a diverse microbiome, benefit of butyrate producing bacteria and its ability to help fatty acid oxidation, help glucose uptake help GLUT4 translocation, help GLUT4 expression. Like, so I'm like, well, what does that mean, Thomas? It means in the short term, within a week of increasing your fiber intake, you're increasing your GLUT4 expression. It means potentially lower glucose, not just from eating fiber with that carbohydrate meal. Oh, sure, well, I eat fiber. It's going gonna, it's gonna to delay the, uh, the absorption of those. Yes, that's true. But there's also a downstream longer-term effect that's going to help you in the, in the interim too. Like, you know, if I told you that by eating more fiber you oxidize more fat and there's very solid rodent model data. Like it, we're talking like three to four X more fatty acid oxidation and reduction of fatty acid synthase, less ability to store fat, more ability to oxidize it. It's pretty dang clear. I mean, I wouldn't say it's proven, but that's clear stuff where it's like, Hey guys, the more butyrate producing bacteria, the more acetate producing bacteria you have, the better cellular function. And Usually when I explain things like that to people, they're like, all right, I'm sold on fiber. That's called knowing your audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. And I mean, the other, the other benefit, and more and more people are talking about this now, given 
the sort of rise of GLP-1 agonists is the short-chain fatty acids increasing GLP-1 levels. Totally. Yeah, that's uh, I literally just filmed some content this this week on that. I was like foods that foods that increase GLP one activation, which I mean you don't want to be cheeky with it and say that it's going to be more potent than semaglutide. Right. But I mean we're talking a pharmaceutical versus doing this holistically, mm-hmm. and uh, and it might be different for someone who is morbidly obese and needs to lose a lot of weight versus someone who's trying to maintain weight and prevent gaining. Yeah, and just the I just find it fascinating. I mean and. You know, especially like just the microbiome in general. And there's, I, I suppose if you're a zero carver, you know, and you're someone that's doing carnivore, you, you end up in a different category, which I'm not super fluent on that science. But I mean, I know there, there's, it's once you're in that zero carb category, there's uh, less uh, need for fiber for motility. But you're also looking at a very narrow, much less diverse microbiome. I have an interesting theory. This is... Uh, purely theory, but I'm curious your take on it because I think we're aligned on it, but it's interesting. As we started to get more, uh, the ability to get foods and fruits and vegetables and fibers from all areas of the world, we tended to have an increase in like our IQ, like kind of hockey stick. If you look at, you know, basically uh, industrial revolution and when we were able to start transporting things. So people in, you know, could get, I could get a, a leak from Russia, you know, whatever, various different forms of fiber arguably our microbiome would have diversified a lot like the different types of fiber and you know we see that replicated in data where it's like you're eating the same kinds of fiber definitely beneficial for the gut but when you start adding new fibers in you know inulins beta glucans this and that it gets even better maybe our maybe uh you know the growth of our just ability to uh be more intellectual people has come from that and you start going back, like, do we potentially retreat back to being cavemen if we start like reducing fiber intake? All right. I mean, this is, it sounds weird coming from like a, you know, a guy that's, uh, you know, eats meat, right? Like, I mean, I'm not, I'm, so I'm just, the point is, is that I think that do fiber we, is important. Do we become an ape again? Yeah. Do we start to like, and you start, this going to sound so bad. I mean, they're probably not listening to this, but I mean, people, like a lot of even the carnivore community, like they just become so angry and so just mean about it. And I can't help but wonder, I'm like, is it because you're retreating back to this? Like, you need are, some, we, are we trying to trigger you, as many people as we can today? To, well, it's just, I get it. Like, I understand uh, from an autoimmune perspective where carnivore has its application for certain people. I, I, I do. I totally do. I've done experiments with it. I felt like dog shit when I did it. But it was, uh, you know, I, I do understand from an anti-inflammatory or just an autoimmune situation, you're just eliminating variables. Like you're, you're, you're just getting so narrow. So I don't want to make it sound like I'm just like cold hearted towards people that are, are doing carnivore because I just understand the pain. You know, my wife, uh, has autoimmune conditions, you know, she never did carnivore to do it. She did, you know, autoimmune paleo, like AIP and it worked very well for her. And, uh, ultimately finding that with her particular issues with autoimmune Hashimoto and, and lupus and things like that much more geared towards, uh, uh, you know, gluten issues. So she still eats carbohydrates. She just eliminated gluten and her TPO antibodies came right back to normal and she didn't have to take levothyroxine. So she understand, understood like how important nutrition is and specific foods that can cause flares. When someone is really dealing with heavy autoimmune issues and I, I just understand, it's, I don't take this the wrong way as condoning it and saying that this is the way it should be done, but I understand how someone you, can end up there. You can empathize. Yeah, it's just them. like, so okay, you narrow it down, mm. you come down, down to one thing, you can but isolate the variable. That 
part there, which is the logical approach, what you just described, seems to sometimes be a little bit lost on on people because i can totally empathize you you if you have some sort of inflammatory related condition and you have particular intolerances there can be certain plant foods that could be aggravating symptoms so eliminating the full suite of them you feel better but which of those foods that you eliminated was contributing to your symptoms and i think stepping through that with potentially with a dietitian or someone that can sort of hold your hand and help you if you need it to then work out how do I start to reintroduce foods that are not triggering my symptoms so that I can enjoy the benefits of fiber. Yeah. Well, that's where we kind of run into a problem where like people like you have empathy towards that, but then you have people that are just saying like, well, no, you're causing that. Like you, you, you can't just, you know, reintroduce a food like food's not going to, or people that just make a blanket statement where, these foods are never going to cause a problem. Like that's no, that's, yeah. that's not correct. Like there absolutely can be people that have issues with cashews or have an issue with, uh, you know, particular vegetable. Like it can absolutely happen. And I think there needs to be recognition of that from both sides in order to ever actually help that person. Yeah. And I think, I think there's some, <clears throat> some, I guess, semi or quasi, uh, explanations for some of this and maybe, you know, if, if you look into the way that our lifestyles have changed and that living in the modern world compared to, say, the hearts are, um, antibiotic overuse, potentially. Antibiotics have their place, but if if we're over-prescribing them, what's that doing to the microbiome? Um, vaginal versus C-section births. We've got um, breastfeeding. There are a number of different environmental factors that could be leading to um, disrupted or sort of... Um, you know, dysbiosis in the gut that could then be setting people up to have these intolerances. Uh, you mentioned before it's hard to convince someone who's 30 or 40 um, to, to really care about total mortality and, and these sorts of things. And I think when I think about cardiovascular disease, that's for me, that's one of the biggest pain points. Because if you, if you look at atherosclerosis, and I just did a, a lipid series with Thomas Dayspring, um, I think many people who are 20, 30 are sort of under this impression that when they're 50, they can focus on that and try and avoid having a heart attack or stroke, but sort of are, are unaware that actually that heart attack that someone has when they're 50, or like my dad had a heart attack when he was 41, um, in front of me and that heart attack is the result of decades of pathology brewing underneath the surface um, you sort of mentioned one example there but how do you think we can better get through to younger people to care about their long-term health well there's I think on that I think there's some some short-term ways where you need to get them excited about it. You need to uh, make it somewhat entertaining for them. You need to make it digestible. Um, I don't think that we can inherently like change. Like, when you're when you're uh, 20, 30, as Chris Williamson would say, you're made of rubber and magic. You know, and it's really difficult to you know to to really understand because you're like I can go and. I can eat that pop tart or, you know, I can eat that stick of margarine or I can eat that stick of butter and it doesn't change me tomorrow. It doesn't do anything. My blood work looks the same. Like 
when you're looking at that, it's very difficult, you know, and it's not until people have a call to action. So I think you need to make it fun to live long. I think you need to make it about, do you, Hey, it's not about how long you're going to live. It's about like, Hey Bob, what do you like to do for fun? I like to play football. Do you want to play football for a long time or you want to not be able to play football? Like, or, or, you know, Hey, Hey Mary, like, what do you like to do? Oh, well, I like to, I really like to rock climb. Like it just makes me happy. Well, that's cool. You know, like, don't you want to do that for a long time? Do you, like, I, I think it needs to be roped into what they do for fun and less about, like, you need to eat this so that you don't die. Because that's just not going to work for them. It needs to, like, positive spin needs to put on this, especially for the younger generation, for the Gen Zers and for the people that are in their early 20s right now. It's like they need entertainment. And they're smart people. You know, these younger generations, like, they're not... You look at this and you think like, oh, these people just like scroll Twitter and Instagram and they, they have no brain for themselves. Like, no, they really, if you look at, they do investigate things. They do look at things. They just are on a different, slightly different operating system than maybe we are in our thirties. Right. And it's, uh, I think we just need to understand like, okay, well, how do we explain this to them on their level? Because for you and I, like maybe we were always told by people that were like 20, 30 years, our senior, this is what you need to do maybe we're not open to listening to that until we are like, wait a minute. Oh wait, this is going to work better for me. So how do we get on their level and telling them that they're going to live longer is not how you do that. It's about, Hey, you want to keep doing what you do. How do you do that for a long time? Right. How do you live better? Um, Do you think some people, and I sort of want to come back to, to weight loss and why some people have success and others don't, but do you think overall, and I feel like this is something you experienced that generally speaking, people who are able, able to make behavior changes and adopt a new lifestyle have endured some sort of pain themselves or shame or have seen someone close to them. Like in my instance, saw my dad have a heart attack and it's that event that then acts as, as like, um, a source of, of kind of strength or something to hold on to such that those behavior changes they make stick and they're able to form a new identity. Yes. I think a large chunk of people are that way, but that also has the ability to send someone the other direction too, you know, because then they do things, uh, do things out of spite or they do things. So I do think that that plays a very big role. The little bit that I know about neurochemistry, you know, I understand the way the neurotransmitters are essentially, especially dopamine, you know, it's always looking at the immediate past and the present, you know, the immediate past, like what just happened. And it's kind of constantly keeping a checks and balances of the immediate past and what's happening now to regulate and manage like baseline. It's similar with other neurotransmitters. And it's like when you have a big shock to the system, you break that pattern where you're not just looking at short term and immediate, like an immediate past and present, you do start looking at longer term past and present. You know, and I look at like my dad's cancer, could it have been avoided? Possibly he smoked and, you know, he was a race car driver. So he was in with, uh, you know, in a garage with car exhaust constantly. Right. So, um, you know, lifestyle things, his diet was actually quite good. So it wasn't a huge, huge changer for me. Um, but you look at these calls to action and like for me, that, that pivotal point, you know, a Jack in the box, or, you know, learning that I was technically type two diabetic, like some things clicked with me when I was told I was type two diabetic, it didn't change my life. I was like, I'm in my twenties. Who cares if I 
144 milligrams per deciliter when I'm fasted. I mean, I look at that now and that's scary. But to me then, that wasn't a shock to me. But at that age, what I needed was a peer seeing me, right? And that was a shock to me. And that's something where it's like, now I can regulate and remember that, that feeling and how I feel now compared to dopamine in the norm, just regulating what happened three seconds ago to now. So it's a bigger impetus to really stake that claim. But I do think that there's people that are not wired that way. I do think that people can have that happen and just just keep on doing what feels good to them. Hmm. So what would you kind of say to someone who, is, let's say someone's listening to this and they're <laughs> overweight, they know that their their health is not where it should be quite frankly but they've tried various things before and they just haven't been able to to make the behavior changes stick and they end up falling back to their old ways do you have any kind of tips or strategies for how someone could approach that and hopefully make some changes that do form part of their lifestyle so that the the weight they lose can be sustained I typically tell people that have like tried a lot of things to make a list of eight to 10 whole foods that they absolutely love. And then I usually give them a license to eat as much of that as they want. I know that's not necessarily accurate, right? Like, I mean, if you eat overeat anything, you're going to gain weight. But if you tell them to list whole foods and things that are not processed, it gets pretty narrow. And sometimes they even have a hard time getting coming up with eight. They say, okay, well, eat as much of those as you want. You know, the caveat is like, as you eat these and you feel more active and you feel better, like you need to move more too. Uh, that usually flips a switch for people because it's it's disarming them. It's disarming like the restrictive mentality. Uh, it's why, it is why intermittent fasting worked well for me too. It's because that, that I didn't feel restricted. Um, so I do also tell people, okay, the next thing is, you know, focus on when you're eating. We focused on what you're eating. Maybe you should focus on when you're eating. You know, and a lot of times that is like a pivoting point for people say like, Hey, like, why don't you try like taking this break between this meal? Or why don't you try, you say you don't like lunch. You don't want to eat lunch. You're not hungry at lunch. Why are you forcing lunch? You know, eat breakfast and don't eat throughout the day and then eat dinner. Like there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, all the things, all the tactics that I use on myself and on others are about disarming resistance so that they feel comfortable and they feel safe. Everyone wants to feel safe. Right, like this is what we want. and when we feel threatened and we feel like our food is our enemy and like everyone's out to get us and like it's just scary, like then you're operating out of fear and you're completely in the wrong operating system. What are your thoughts on calorie counting? I think this is another divisive one. You'll have you know folks like Wayne Norton that are very pro for pro calorie counting, at least for the right person, and then you'll have some people that maybe take a position that nobody should count calories and that it leads to orthorexic eating behaviors. Yeah. I mean, it's a fair, it's a fair thing to say that it could lead to that. But I also think that the dose makes the poison and also the type of person matters too. Uh, I'm the type of person where if I get into cal calorie counting, I will count every single calorie and it becomes cumbersome. So I feel um, intuitively eating in theory would be great, except for the problem that we have such hyper palatable food that is probably overriding our intuition. When you're lighting your brain up like a Christmas tree between all kinds of, you know, hyper palatable fats, hyper palatable sugars, not to mention 
things like MSG that are also increasing the umami effect of food. I don't think there's anything wrong, really wrong inherently with MSG, by the way, but we just have to accept the fact that its purpose is to make food taste better. So when you have all these things that are designed to make us eat more, it's really hard to eat intuitively. So I wrestle with the fact of saying like, you should just eat when you're hungry because most people would say they're hungry, you know, and that's uh, a hard one. Calorie counting, what I've adopted over the years, however, I, I have a pretty good understanding of what's, what food contains what. I look at my calories generally over the course of a week. You've probably heard me talk about this. I look much more of like, where am I? Am I in a surplus or a deficit at the end of a week? Because, because I intermittent fast frequently, I have a fair bit of, uh, you know, two or three days a week where I'm fasting and I might only get a thousand calories in those days. And yet, so you're doing that by skipping breakfast. Is that still how you do uh, it? No, a lot of times I skip dinner. I do, I do various forms of time restricted feeding. I mean, we can get very nuanced with that, but I feel like the benefits of the benefits of when you don't eat can be umbrellaed over various times of the day for slightly different benefits. Uh, I know Huberman talks about this a lot too. It's like skipping dinner has different circadian cue benefits, whereas like skipping breakfast might have more caloric restriction benefits and might have uh, more energy balance benefits based upon like what deficit you're in during your most active portion of the day, right? So skipping breakfast might make it so that I'm in a much heavier deficit while I'm moderately active throughout the day, whereas skipping food at night is more a biological like circadian cue type thing to help me sleep, right? Yeah, and the episode that I did with Courtney Peterson, she actually had a, a really interesting study that I think you, you'd be particularly interested in. It was um, subjects with pre-diabetes and their blood glucose control, if I'm remembering correctly, was much better when they had more of their food in the early part of the day rather than late before bed. Yeah. Yeah, I typically would recommend that. Breakfast like a king, lunch like a prince, dinner like a pauper. Just eat a big breakfast, you know, on the days. And that's what I do when I'm not fasting. I do typically have a bigger breakfast. Uh, unless I'm filming and I feel like I need to have a little bit more brain. Like when I do eat, I definitely more sluggish for sure. You know, so with that, I look at my calories generally over the course of a week, you know, because I don't necessarily model my nutrition intake, my calorie intake, based upon how active I was that day. Because I don't think it necessarily matters personally. I think that you have a lot more time to recoup from a workout as far as calories. We know it to be true with protein. We know that that protein window is more like 24 to 48 hours. Uh, but I also find it to be true with calories. Like if I, if I run 10 miles this morning and I burn 1,500 calories, I don't feel like I need to compensate that 1,500 calories today. I might compensate it tomorrow. Uh, and it seems to work just fine for me. And so it's allowed me to just like not be so anal retentive about tracking every single calorie. I know roughly where I am, but I'm okay with the fact that, Hey, like I'm in a surplus today and I'll probably be in a deficit tomorrow cause I'm going to fast, you know? And so it just allows me to balance out. It's given me a lot of slack. So for the lay person, person that's not, you know, doing this as a literal career, um, I think it's very broken down into their bio-individual traits like some people are very motivated by that detail oriented. It's just like, you know, have you ever talked to uh, someone that's a, um, you know, a double E, you know, like a uh, engineer, you know, like that's the, most of them will admit that they're not exactly good at uh, empathizing and socializing and they're just wired that way, right? They're very detail oriented, analytical people. I think how we look at diets is the same way too. Uh, and Funny enough, like most of the engineer type of brains that I know do really, really well tracking calories. 
And it's funny, uh, you know, I don't do it too much anymore, but when I would coach people or write plans for people, it was always funny. You could always, like the people that I knew were engineers would always come back and be like, hey, I calculated all these calories mm -hmm. and I ended up at this, right? And mm -hmm. you've probably done the fair yeah. share of this. Like Very systems-based. Yeah. So it's just, it, yeah. and if that works for them, that's totally cool. Mm. Um, but there's a lot of people that just aren't wired that way. And I think they need to be given, I wonder how much success we would have if just gave them a window and said like, you know, hey, you need to be between 2,500 and 3,200 every day would they max out at 3200 do you think every day what window is that again so if we just said yeah if we just said simon you can eat uh 2500 to 3200 calories per day which is random numbers would you do you think you'd uh if you were a regular person would you just uh cap out at 3200 every day probably i would yeah i think that's that's the hard part right because it's like me being who I am now, I would say, oh, well, I had 2,500 today. I'll give myself slack to have 3,200 tomorrow. So it's just like if you give someone a range, do they automatically hit that top end range because food is enjoyment? Or if you give them a range, do they uh, feel more refreshed and they feel less stressed about it? Yeah, I guess some of this comes back to personality. And um, I feel like the 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 best approach and it's why I enjoy these kind of conversations is to understand that the best approach for each person might not be exactly the same. And there's all these different tools. So it could be time restricted eating and that could be skipping breakfast or that could be skipping dinner. Uh, it could be tracking your calories. It could be doing a low carb diet. It could be doing a low fat diet or a combination of any of these and ultimately i think i said this before but what feels the easiest yeah. for that person and that is something that they can sustain that works for them socially as well all of these things are important or why not being able to have fun with all of them too you know i uh i've actually i caught some crap for it back in the day when i did it but i did you know like a couple months of uh of a uh, vegan you know just a few years ago on my channel and candidly i felt great and uh, people, you know, I, I did lose a little bit of muscle size because I probably wasn't really like good at figuring out how to get my protein. Probably takes time to figure that, master that craft really. Yeah, it's, uh, but I felt great, right? And it was, uh, and then I did like a month of vegan keto, which was quite difficult. But uh, fortunately, like my wife got really into it and made delicious food. So that made it totally like doable, you know, like just she, she, she went to town. She really got into it, dude. I mean, I felt great. Right. So I guess my point in saying that is like, I've never demonized a vegan, uh, a vegan diet. Like I've just like, I know there's people in my camp that will, but I leaned into it. I'm like, how can I help people that like doing keto also do vegan because I know the benefits of it. Like, and, but if I, if the carnivore community heard me saying that, like they'd destroy me. Right. They would just find every reason to cut me down. Does that mean that I'm vegan? No, but it means it is because I've tested it and it works well for me. It is, I've checked that box as it being a viable tool in my toolbox. So now and then I do a couple weeks of vegan. Why? Because it's different and it feels good. And then I'll do keto. Carnivore is one thing where I just don't feel that great. And I tested that too. I really don't. And, you know, someone that still eats a fair bit of protein, a fair bit of meat, uh, when I went all meat, I didn't feel good. So that one isn't a tool in my toolbox anymore. But I, I'll do paleo, I'll do vegan, I'll do vegetarian, I'll do intermittent fasting. And I rotate them out and I have fun with it. And that's just it. I have fun. You know, and it's like I get to, we get to look forward to it. My wife will even be like, hey, you want to do an experiment again soon? Like try something different? 
and let's do it. And so we just like take all just dogmatic behavior out of the equation. And I think if other people could just learn, because we can all sit down and we can all look at the literature and we can all say like, there are tremendous benefits to a low carb diet. There are tremendous benefits to a plant-based diet. There are tremendous benefits to a Mediterranean diet. You can have benefits to multiple diets that cross the same categories. Okay, it doesn't have to be just one. Like, so that's just the thing that's frustrating is like, okay, don't deny that the low carb diet has benefits and there's tremendous research to back it up. But because that, that doesn't mean that there's not benefits to a high carb diet. Like people tend to think like, oh, the studies are clear, it's clear, low carb is the best. No, we need to stop kind of like pitching diet against diet and we need to focus on like the benefits of what could work. I so think some of that is we feel like whatever our personal sort of experience or anecdote was we mistakenly want to generalize that for everyone yes. as the only possible solution and we're kind of we're making a few assumptions or errors there one is where often we make a bunch of changes to our diet we get some sort of health benefit and then we attribute that to one thing right like oh it was the seed oils but you removed all ultra processed foods um and then the other thing that I think is interesting is that we miss out on when we kind of think about our anecdote. And I think anecdotes are valid. I, I think someone's personal experience is valid. Um, and I'm talking more about generalizing that is for every Simon who, you know, had this good experience, how many Daves and Bretts and James did the same thing but had a, a bad outcome? And that is where I think coming into looking at some of the, the data is important. So you, you, you think about the anecdote and then we're looking at what's been tried and tested and then kind of forming our views from there. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I think that's a, it's a big piece and it's unfortunately that's not sexy to sell online. You know, it's not, that's not sexy to talk about in content that, you know, Hey, this worked for you or it didn't work for you. And, uh, but I think people need to just be able to have fun with it. Otherwise, it's it's going to be legwork all the time. And you can only prefrontal cortex your way through that for so long before you're going to... Uh, what do we always say? Uh, we say the military applications that I work with, like to say all the time, you never rise to the occasion. You always default to your lowest level of training. And, you know, in a military application, what that means is like you can you can train someone for that peak event and that will help. But under stress, you will not rise to that occasion. You'll default to what your baseline level is. And for the military or for special operations, they just make that baseline very high. They train hard, they push themselves, and their default, their baseline is, you know, what right. much more than what we are as civilians, mm -hmm. right? So they they just so when you fall, you don't fall too far. Exactly. And I think that our baseline as just regular Americans, I can speak for Americans probably not just Americans, but probably everywhere. It's just easier to default back to comfort. It's easier to default to hyperpalatable because it's easy. We're all pressed for time. So until we can kind of learn how to change our default patterns, every time we get stressed, we're going to go back there. Every time it gets hard, we're going to go back there. I don't have an answer on how to fix that. You know, it's, uh, well, I, I mean, I think conversations like this help where someone's confused and thinking, what is the single best approach to nutrition and then they understand that 
well there is actually there's there's multiple approaches find the one that's best for you i think in terms of where we we agree on so much we agree that you could do low carb you could do high carb there's probably some commonalities and it comes back to diet quality so uh, are you favoring unsaturated fats over saturated are you getting enough fiber things like that but you can do that on a low carb diet or you can do that in a high carb diet um, so i think this information kind of helps people feel more confident and then hopefully find that higher baseline um, as opposed to just hearing different corners of the internet or fighting and trying to you know say that they have the single best answer for everyone people always you probably hear this a lot they'll, they'll say to me a lot just tell me what not to do tell me what i can't have and i think people want that because they're like well just give me give me abundance but tell me what i can't have and unfortunately like as someone that is seemingly orthorexic on this on the, on the surface which i'm not but I, I seem like it probably just because i've put a lot of content out but it when what should i avoid and i'm not gonna i'm gonna put you know i was on lewis howe's podcast and uh I love Lewis. He asked me, but he, he's like, hey, we're going to talk about like the uh, five or 10 foods you need to avoid to live longer. And I was like, ooh, that's going to be tough. He's like, really? I was like, yeah, dude, like that's going to be tough. I have like two. I have like maybe we should avoid like hydrogenated oils. We should avoid trans fats and we should avoid like super hyper processed sugar and maybe maybe heavily processed grains, depending on how active someone is. He's like, you got anything more? I was like, I had to freaking think. I'm just like, dude, not not if I'm being fully integrity driven here. Like, I mean, I could pick apart, you know, okay, well, this this saturated fat is bad. This, and that, but there's also a practical use case for them. I mean, the only thing I can't find a use case for is a hydrogenated oil. Mm-hmm. Um, right, because then with everything else, it becomes the dose and the overall dietary pattern. Um, but I think that's helpful information for people as well. Uh, have you? come across Roy Taylor's work. I know some of your, uh, I know you've talked about him. So I, I know, you know, we talked a little bit on Instagram about, about this, but I don't know him too well other than what you've talked. Yeah. I think he's, I've become increasingly interested in his work. He's based in the UK. I think he's diet agnostic or maybe has been involved in low carb trials before, but relatively sort of dietary agnostic with his approach and his he's been researching um type 2 diabetes sort of metabolic syndrome insulin resistance non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and trying to understand what's driving it and also once someone has it is it reversible can you put it into remission and how can you do that and he has he's done the direct trial i think counterbalance counterpoint like a bunch of different studies um but what's what's really interesting is and this is coming back to our discussion about weight loss i'm starting to adjust my position a little bit on whether someone needs to focus on weight loss based on their bmi for example and i say that because he has this hypothesis, which I think he's proven now, the personal fat threshold. Have you heard of that? Uh, yes, basically. We, we only have so much ability to uh, store fat under specific circumstances. And, yeah, yeah. And, and the key thing being that 
there's a lot of inter individual variability. So you can have someone who on the outside doesn't look overweight, but they're very insulin resistant. And then you can have someone who looks very overweight, but they're not that insulin resistant. And what this seems to come down to is that how capable is your body of storing fat subcutaneously? And if you can store more fat subcutaneously than the next person who's the same body weight as you, who is storing less fat subcutaneously, but more visceral fat, they're going to be much more likely to develop insulin resistance and, and type 2 diabetes. And it's this uh, sort of fat spilling over into the liver and into the, the pancreas. So into the liver, which is, um, as we mentioned before, it's affecting the ability to sort of turn off glucose disposal into the bloodstream from the liver. And then the fat in the pancreas, which is affecting the beta cells and your production of insulin, which again affects your ability to get sugar out of the blood. Um, but so, so where I was going with that is I've sort of slightly adjusted my position around someone being overweight and obese and how bad it is for their metabolic health in that I think, I think you really need to understand how much visceral fat you have. I think that's key. And I think waist circumference is a bit of a crude measurement of that, or you could do a DEXA, things of that nature. Um, but the other thing that's really interesting from his studies is, well, two things. One is they've put people on these 800-calorie uh, meal replacement type diets for an intensive period of sort of 8 to 12 weeks as an intervention. These are people with type 2 diabetes. And in those in the, the direct trial, I think it was 30 or 40% of people who over that period, the average weight loss was 15 kilograms. 30 or 40% of those people went into complete remission. They were able to completely reverse that, or I'm not sure if you can, we can say reverse. I think the word is remission. Um, but basically that means that their fasting blood glucose levels return to someone uh, who does not have the levels that someone without diabetes would have, and they're not on any medications at all. Um, and and then they try and put people onto a weight sort of maintenance weight management diet thereafter um and so i think this is another example i you know there's a lot of fighting around type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance and what's what's the best intervention is it low carb is it low fat um but i think his research is making it very clear right now that it's it's really what can help you lose the most weight and that this disease is driven by an excess of energy um excess of energy energy toxicity we could call it and build up of the fat in the liver and the and the pancreas yeah no we have this uh, abundance crisis right whether it's from nutrition or just cellular energetics you know it's uh, that abundance of energy is either going to get stored and ultimately lead to an inflammatory response later on down the line that could impede the effectiveness of insulin. Or if you don't have the ability to store as well, potentially stores as visceral fat, and then you have a different problem, right? So uh, the shorter term problem, I think the shorter term issue with visceral fat is more visible. You can see that the effect of adipose tissue subcutaneously is a little bit of a longer game. You know, if I were to put... Uh, 100 pounds of white fat on you, 
right now, in a week, would you have terrible biomarkers? What would your CRP be, right? So I think it's a slow game, a slower game. Whereas I think that visceral adipose could be a different situation. If I put five pounds or 10 pounds of visceral adipose tissue on you today, I think you absolutely could have negative effects seven days from now because it's so inflammatory and, you know, it's lipopolysaccharides are just, I mean, when you understand how visceral fat works too, and you understand kind of its ability to, um, in a way, affect lipopolysaccharides that are leaking from the bloodstream in a way to sort of deal with that pathogenic product, you understand why visceral fat is there, but when you have an abundance of it, it's a very immediate problem. Yeah, I think that's, a, I mean, that's, that's a good point. Um, I'm certainly not saying that someone who has a lot of subcutaneous adipose tissue but small amounts of visceral fat would not be healthier if they lost some weight. I think they would. I think they're probably, at least from a metabolic health point of view, are healthier than if they were the exact same body weight but had a lot more visceral fat. Yeah, and a lot of people that have high amounts of sub-Q fat also have maybe not proportionally high visceral fat, but, you know, absolute high visceral fat you're wearing a whoop and actually i just ordered that i think i ordered that same color band oh really yeah i think they call that ivory or something um but that that gets me thinking again about the other parts of our life side so i saw some recent research looking <laughs> looking at sleep and sleep deprivation and they they took a group of people and they sleep deprived half of them and they got four hours sleep a night. So really reduced. I think the control group was eight hours sleep. And the people that were sleep deprived had increased hunger the next day. They also were more attracted to like seductive, very indulgent foods. And they stored more visceral fat. Yeah, it's, and the, the whole sleep category is, I don't think we know nearly as much as we want to know, obviously. I think we're starting to find there's a level of bio-individuality with that too. I asked Peter Atia this. I said like, hey, you know, we've said eight hours is the norm for so long. Like, is that, this is kind of an arbitrary number. Like, are there people that can get by with five and people, and you know, he said, absolutely. He's like, you know, and there's definitely those outliers. He said, but you know, the, the regression always comes back to the mean of six to eight kind of being norm. Like you can have people that are, that really do thrive on six, but yeah, like arguably once you start getting under five, you're in very bad territory. What do you focus on? I mean, I know you have two young kids, so things are probably yeah, changed. I mean, it's getting better do now. Do you have a routine? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, we're almost always in bed by nine. Like we start their bedtime routine at nine, you know, so we're usually heads are on the pillows by like nine fifteen. My kids make it easy because they're, they're up at six left, right or center. It doesn't matter, you know, which holds us to a clock. We don't go out. We don't do that because like we know that if we go to bed at midnight or if we go to bed at one, we're still getting up at six. Like there's no way around it. So it holds us to a nice kind of pattern anyway, which is great. It can also be stressful because just like, you know, if you wake up in the middle of the night, you don't sleep, don't sleep too well. And you're like, Oh shoot. Well, I can't sleep in. So I've lost that, you know, so that makes it tougher. But you know, I really do focus on uh, my sleep efficiency. That's the biggest number that I look at on my whoop and my aura because I feel like we can't accurately measure the sleep stages with our devices yet. I just don't think we're there. You know, Dr. Atia kind of agreed on that. And it's just, but if we look at sleep efficiency, that's a pretty good marker. You know, so I try to aim for 
80 to 95% sleep efficiency, you know, hardly ever get over 95, but. Right. So you're not really looking at the breakdown of the kind of REM sleep, light sleep, those sort of. Not too much because I just don't trust it. Mm. You know, for example, like my, you probably noticed the discrepancies between the aura and the whoop, mm. you know, so it's like, okay, clearly we don't know. Mm. Yeah. That's one of the reasons that I wear both. Yeah. Same there. Same there. <laughs> and then you... on the days where my sleep efficiency is low on the whoop. I look at the aura and if that's higher, I feel a bit better. Yeah. Well, I was going to ask you, cause you're the only, literally the only other person I met that wears both. So like, what do you, what do you do? Like, which one do you rely on more? Uh, uh whichever one makes me feel better. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of what I say too. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'll have, I think today I was at a, actually it's pretty high. I was at like a 92% on my whoop surprisingly, but I was a 79 on my aura. So what I typically do is I'm like, well, I feel like, I feel like I'm in my nineties. I feel good. So, uh, but what's interesting is I do know that the sleep tracking seems to be a little bit more fine-tuned on the aura. So I kind of cross-reference with the sleep on the aura. So I'm like, if I find that my sleep was 90% on aura and my recovery was really bad on whoop, then I'm like, okay, well, maybe there's something happening independent of my sleep. Maybe I'm starting to get sick or something like that. Whereas if my uh, sleep is really crappy on my uh aura but my recovery is really high on my whoop that's when i do consider i'm like well wait a minute like maybe this isn't looking at my sleep accurately maybe my whoop isn't looking at my sleep accurately because the bottom line is i trust the aura with my sleep better than i trust the whoop with my sleep because i know they've put a lot of money into that and i just know they're really proud of how dialed in that is whereas the whoop is just great for my real-time strain i really do mm -hmm. like the idea of, yeah i use that every like day. that's great like to just know like if you're coming down with something and you're like, well, shit, I haven't done that much. Why am I at a 17 strain? It really encourages you to like look deep at what's going on. Yeah. Do you, do you adjust your training around that? Uh, just based on my recovery or, or yeah, my strength? So, I mean, just any of this data, would you ever sort of adjust the type of training you're doing, whether you're going to do that long steady state jog or <laughs> resistance training? In a perfect world, I would, but... I've got my program in my head and part of it's just psychological. I love it so much. I just don't want to like, you know, Oh no, I was, I was scheduled to run 12 miles this morning, but my recovery is crap. You know, I'd say I have a threshold. Like if I, if I end up dipping below like 60 or something, then I'm like, okay, I need to like, and both are registering that. I'm like, something's definitely going on here. Uh, you know, then I might adjust, but then it throws a wrench in so much my, the rest of my week. Dude, this has been fun. Thank you so much. Um, I'd, I'd love to be able to continue this. I hope that we can sometime do a, a round two. But if if folks listening would like to learn more about what you're doing and the information you're putting out, where should we send them? I think YouTube's just the safest place. You know, that's where most of my content is. Instagram, Thomas DeLauer. Uh, my website is thomasdelauer.com. I've got a... Uh, best-selling book on Amazon, which is, is great. It's just, it's called intermittent fasting made easy. It's has nothing to do with being uh, animal based or plant based. It's purely about how to time things, how to do things. And there's uh, pretty robust sections for vegetarians and vegans in there specifically too, where it just kind of gives tips on breaking a fast properly with that. And so if anyone that's interested in intermittent fasting, that's a great resource. Well, you're a vegetarian now, is that right? <laughs> <laughs> I only took two hours. <laughs> I'll, I'll, at least, I'll, at least, I'll at least test it for a couple months to see how it feels. Yeah, I'm, I'm up for it. Thanks, man. You bet. There you have it, friends. I hope you enjoyed this episode. 
If you did and want to stay up to date with future episodes, be sure to hit that subscribe button on YouTube and follow on Apple or Spotify. Finally, thank you for showing up and the effort that you're making to take control of your health. I look forward to hanging out with you again in the next episode.